Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 702nd episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Welcome, welcome, everybody. Greg Peterson coming to you. I'm actually in Phoenix this week. We're walking through our citrus program here in Phoenix, and I am here with Christy Wilhelmy. Hello, Christy. Hello, everyone. I absolutely love, I told you this before we started recording, I love connecting with you because what you're doing is so incredibly cool. So thank you for joining us tonight. Thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. So Christy is the founder of Garden Nerd, the ultimate resource for garden nerds, where she publishes her newsletters, her popular blog, top-ranked podcasts, and YouTube videos. She also specializes in small space, organic vegetable garden design, consulting, and classes. Get this. This is amazing. Between 70 and 80% of her family's produce comes from her garden of less than 300 square feet. Love that. That's one of my goals in moving to Asheville was to to actually concentrate on growing my own food much more. She is the author of Gardening for Geeks, 400 plus tips for organic gardening success, grow your own mini fruit garden, and just released this year her debut novel, Garden Variety, which is amazing. I read it. I got a copy of it and read it. Thank you. But my bone to pick with you is where's the next one? I'm working on it. (laughs) Yeah, I have about 13,000 words written on the second one and everything, you know, we're headed into the busy season, fall planting. And so I, uh, there doesn't seem to be too much of a break this year for me to disappear and go work on this one, but I'm, I'm working on it. I am working on it. Oh, good, good, good. Cause uh, it was an amazing read. I loved it. I, I consumed it and it was like, but it's done. Where's the mo- where's more? <laughs> well, my plan is for it to be a trilogy. So you're, if everything oh, goes according to plan, you're in luck. All right, cool. So uh, you mean a trilogy of trilogies, right? A trilogy of so nine of them. No, that's the, thank you so very much for your confidence in me. Uh, <laughs> no, I have, I have plans, but right, I'm cool. not that far past the third. 
All right, perfect. Yeah. So September is a perfect time to get a kick in the pants on starting back into our fall gardening. Christy Wilhelmy, frequent Urban Farm podcast guest and author of Garden Variety, joins us this month garden in our garden chat this month to help dig into different aspects about one of the best times to garden. Come gather around and get your questions answered. So let's jump in. Where do we start with well, uh, I feel like fall is the best growing season because A, cooler temperatures, B, mm -hmm. fewer bugs, C, maybe rain. So that is that isn't all the impetus I need to grow things. Mm -hmm. And for me, it's just the time when you can put things in the ground and they don't need as much attention from us either. So right. I really love fall gardening. When what's on what's on this? schedule for fall gardening? I mean, what would we be planting? Right. So for me, I just I just planted three seed trays full of all my brassicaceae. So broccoli, mm. cauliflower, cabbage, kohlrabi, Brussels sprouts, kale. And, you know, if you're going to be planting root veggies, this is a great time to do it. Carrots, parsnips, beets, turnips, radishes. Turnips and radishes are part of the brassicaceae family, but I sort of leave them in oh. with the others. Also, salad galore, right? So all yeah. your lettuces, mustard greens, arugula. I love growing mosh. Have you grown mosh before? I haven't. Because <laughs> it's, 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 so I, you know, I'm 54 years in Phoenix, Arizona. Right. Growing the more delicate things. Yeah, yeah. Good luck with that. Right. So but well, I will now where we're at. You can try it in your greenhouse when you build it. Is it, how, what's your progress on your greenhouse? Oh, the greenhouse is coming. It probably won't be till next year, but. Oh. Okay. Uh, although we are going to be building, so you know what cattle panels are? Yes. Yeah. So cattle panels are four feet wide and 16 feet long, and we're going to buy some and bend them. They're metal things. We're going to bend them and sheet them with plastic for a, for a hundred square foot greenhouse for, for this winter. Right. So that's great. Yeah. Lo like a low tunnels or sew yep. them together for a high exactly. tunnel. Yep. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Nice. Exactly. What else do I like? Oh, so. Fall is also the best time to plant your onions, garlic, and shallots. And oh, yes. I, I mean, I certainly tuck those in the ground in October. And I also plant green onions. And if your herbs need refreshing, it's the perfect time to do that. We talked about root veggies, and I'm just kind of going them through the mental list. It's the best time to plant perennials. So your perennial herbs or rhubarb, asparagus, artichokes. And any cane berries that you want to grow, refresh your strawberry bed. Mm. And of course, fruit trees. Fruit right? trees, yeah, right? exactly. So at least pre-order your fruit trees from Urban Farm Nursery. Mm. And in Phoenix. Yep. In Phoenix. And and then you will be able to plant those out when they arrive. When do they usually those places will ship to me in either December or January? Exactly. Because we don't get a frost. So that's where yep. they go in the ground. In other parts of the country, they will ship in, you know, one like April, you know, kind of late March or early April. Well it'll be interesting because I actually ordered some trees for delivery into North Carolina. So it'll be interesting to see when they ship them to me. Yeah. When's your last frost? May 10th or something oh, like gosh, that. Oh gosh, that's so oh, yeah. late. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and a lot of these things that you're talking about will overwinter. Yes. And they even get sweeter tasting or better tasting mm -hmm. through a winter if you do get a frost. So where I grow carrots, we don't get a frost. And they're, let's call them earthy in their flavor. 
They're not uh, super sweet. They're more earthy. But if you get a frost, that will sweeten them up. And so I love, I've grown accustomed to that earthy flavor. I find it really wonderful. But for people who are like, they're not sweet. I'm not going to grow them again. We just need a frost. <laughs> That's all it takes. Nice. Yeah. All right. So one of the things I always encourage people is to find a planting calendar for your area. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Planting calendars, you know, most gardening books are not written for places with warm winters. They are geared towards people who shut down their gardens for the winter. Mm -hmm. And for me here in Los Angeles, where I live, I'm in zone 10B. We start putting our cool season crops in the ground when we see consistent temperatures under 73 degrees in the 10-day forecast. That's my rule of thumb. 73 degrees. That's pretty precise. It's not 75. It's not yeah. 70, 73. Why is that? <laughs> Maybe it's because 73 degrees is the temperature at which Bagrata bugs, which have migrated north from Mexico, and they they attack Brassicaceae plants. So Bagrata bugs breed in temperatures over 73 degrees. So I ah, wait for under 73 degrees. That's brilliant. Yeah, because we inevitably will have a heat wave somewhere in there in December or January or February. But most of the time when you put them in the ground, you can plant your onions, garlic and shallots beforehand because the and seeded things. If you're going to seed lettuces, they actually like the warm temperatures to heat up and germinate more quickly. But if you're transplanting out your tender greens and, and brassicaceae plants, I wait until we are seeing those lower temperatures. Mm -hmm. So for a lot of people, it used to be late September for us, and then it was late now, and then it was October, and now it's late October, early November. Early November. Yeah. Yep. Same so, in Phoenix. Yeah. So that's what that's what my timeline is, and those will grow through the winter until about February or March, and then mm -hmm. we pull those out, and that's when we've got our tomatoes going in the ground right away because we don't have really spring. We have spring summer. You know, it's just like right. tiny, tiny little two week spring, and then summer and so we get the tomatoes in the ground and peppers and eggplant, beans, corn, squash, cucumbers and melons all go in after that in succession as the, the winter stuff is coming out. After the last frost on some of the After last frost for people who have a frost. And so there's that old adage of starting your seeds six to eight weeks prior to last frost. Mm -hmm. Almanac.com, the Farmer's Almanac website. You can type in your zip code or arborday.org. I think they have, oh, they nice. also will, maybe they might've changed their website, but back in the day, that's where you could go and type in your zip code and it would tell you what your hardiness zone is. And from there, once you know your hardiness zone, you can look for your frost dates, but the Farmer's Almanac website has frost dates included in their search. And then you can reliably plant out after last frost, although Knockwood climate change has been so weird. People are getting frosts in June. Yeah. Weirdly. So yeah. hard to say. Well, we actually, you know, I've had a planting calendar for the low desert that I've been giving away for 20 years online. Nice. And I had to update it a couple of years ago because of, you know, what you were just talking about. So I highly encourage you to find a planting calendar for your area. What I did when I got to Asheville is I typed in Asheville planting calendar. Oh, cool. So, you know, whatever the name of your town is and planting calendar and, and probably something will come up. Yeah. So you said you started out trays. So you're starting your own seeds rather than buying plant starts. 
I do. I have a whole le- uh, tri-level set of lights, of grow lights, <laughs> three-tiered grow light system oh, nice. that I use. And seed trays, they're small 24-inch, sorry, 24-cell seed trays. Mm-hmm. And I will, I have a whole process for seed starting where I make my, I do my plan on paper first, which I had, I just taught, really? I just taught a class on how to do this on paper and I teach it again in spring. So your listeners will have to come check wow. that out. So I plan it all out on paper. So I know exactly because you know, how many times have you bought seeds and tucked them in your seed jars or wherever you store your seeds? And then you go start planting things in your garden. You kind of forget about the, the new seeds you have. So my ritual is I take out I have templates for my two gardens. I have a community garden plot in my, my test garden here. Mm-hmm. And I have both of them templated out. I print those out. I take all my seeds out of the refrigerator. Wow, you are so organized. I am so organized. It's, if I'm one thing, it's organized. I lay all my seeds out. I used to do this on my bed because that was the only space I had with enough room to spread mm-hmm. out all the seeds. And I organize them by family. So the the oh. kales will all go together because I grow 16 different kinds of kale every year. So kale all by itself, that's one bed. And then all the other brassicaceae, all the root veggies. So carrots, turnips, parsnips, radishes, and then all the lettuces, the spinach, the mosh, and whatever else it is that I'm going to grow. And one by one, I go through and I keep a calendar, speaking of calendars, I, I have a journal that documents every garden I've ever planted dating back to 1997. Wow. And that was my first garden at my community garden plot in 1997 before some people watching this were born. Anyway, so I look back for three years, fall, fall, fall for the three years prior to see where my brassicaceae were. And I picked the bed that they weren't in for the last three years. Ah, right. So mm-hmm. Crop rotation, right? And I'll just write a little note Brassicaceas uh, are going to go in that bed, and I'll do the same for some other things, like where wherever the tomatoes were. I don't want to plant potatoes there this season. Right. Put those somewhere else. They're in the same family. They are, yes, yeah. along with tomatillos and you know eggplant, peppers, eggplant, whatever. Yeah. So then I start plugging in where those are going to go, and then as as I finish plotting it out on paper, I take those seeds and put them back in the jar, so they're off the table. And by the end of my planning out period, all the seeds are back in the jar. And I know like, oh, I bought these. I totally forgot that I bought these. I need to find a place for them. So there's definitely room in the garden for those seeds. Mm -hmm. And then from that template that I have from that, that plan, I know exactly how many seeds to start and how many plants I'm going to need in the, in that bed. So I don't really, I'm, because I don't have a lot of space, I don't often germinate more than what I need. And right. which is why my seeds last like 20 years. <laughs> now, are you saving some of those seeds? You mean are you saving, letting go to say going to seed and saving some of them? So I have saved seed at times because uh but like the the tomato seeds and lettuces and cilantro and dill and parsley and arugula, those are really easy to save celery also those are great and beans of course i have a whole set of jars behind my head that are full of beans and i will do that but more often than not i'm growing things really close together and i don't have the isolation isolation distances to get them but one thing i did i've been growing a 
a kale specifically grown by a tribe, uh, a group of um, tribal folks in New Mexico. And they are, uh, it's called Black Magic Kale, which is from Eden's, it was Eden's Seed, something, Eden's Edge or something like that. I can't remember. Wow. I'm so sorry. But that kale is bred to grow durably in hot weather. And so I, I started saving, I had, I planted them and they lasted like two years and through the hot summer. And I was like, I'm letting these go to seed. And I saved them and I've been reseeding those and, and uh, selecting for the, the ones that are doing as well as the originals did. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned something earlier that about, you don't have enough space to cross pollinate or to, or to keep sequester. Them from yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. I planted beets and uh, Swiss chard next to each other. A couple of decades ago, this is one of my learning lessons. And what happened? <laughs> I saved the seeds and I got Swiss you got, chard. You got chard. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, yeah. And I just saved some Swiss chard seeds. The beets were long gone and the, the seed head for the chard is so beautiful when you let oh, it go yeah. to seed. It's just as beautiful as the plant itself. And then I saved a bunch of seeds, but I'm, I'm going to grow those out and see what happens because it's like rainbow chard. You never know what you're going to get. You right. try it. Well, and, and I did save seeds from the beets and those I got Swiss chard out of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so sorry. Yeah. Isolation yeah you know, it's part of, it's part of our learning important. process, right? It's true. And uh, Seed Savers Exchange put out a really big, thick book on seed saving a couple of years ago that I've mm. read. And it's it's the perfect, if you want to learn about seed saving, they're the people to go to, honestly. That book is is helpful. So I stick to the things that can be saved that are self-pollinating that don't cross very easily. And so the lettuces and that kind of thing. But when I say my seeds last 20 years, it's because I store them in a cool, dark and dry place, which to me is in a Lockwood jar in the refrigerator with desiccant yep. packets. And that yep. and that's that's it. So I'm germinating 22 year old tomato seeds. No problem. Right? Like 100% germination. Some things don't work that way, but most of them do. Most of them. Well, even if you, you know, if you have 22 year old seeds and you get a 10% germination, you still get germination out of it. Yeah. Still good. Right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know what? I have never living in Phoenix all my life. I have never understood why they put those dang desiccant packages in everything. So that you can steal them for your seed jar. <laughs> right. And I saved them for that, actually. Mm -hmm. But now I live in Asheville, North Carolina, and I completely get it. Oh, yeah. Because you have humidity. Because we have humidity. Right. Exactly. Yeah. We have a high humidity here in LA. And I also don't have air conditioning. So it's mm. the only place that's kind of a stable temperature all the time is the refrigerator. Yeah. Yeah. The whole door uh, is my seeds. Amber's <laughs> got a couple of great questions here. So I'm going to pitch one at you. Because this is a great one. And I'm an, I, I have a quiz for you about this question after. Oh, wow. Yeah. I planted some broccoli and cauliflower seeds in trays. They're getting long and spindly. Uh, okay. Let's talk about that. Is that the end of the question? Is it just a statement? That's the end of the more? question. Here's okay. my question. What do they call this? Leggy. They're There's, called leggy. But the botanical. Name. Oh, I don't know. Tell me. It's, I, I got this from my, my uh, botany classes at ASU 20 years ago. Etoilation. E-toilation. E-toilation is what they I get. I want to remember that. Yeah. Uh, so leggy means not enough sunlight and yep. or light. And the way that, so going back to my seed trays, when I seed them, greenhouse dome goes on until the very first one sprouts. And then that goes off and does not go back on. So a lot of mm. people end up leaving the greenhouse dome on too long and you end up mm. getting damping off. 
and it's not great. So you want to take that lid off. And then the rule of thumb is that you want your light source to be no more than three inches above the leaves of the of the plant. So oh, that, good, to know. good to know. Yeah. So I have my my light source is on chains so I can lower it over the seeds and then raise it up as the plants grow. Mm -hmm. But my first time I ever back in early the early 90s, I the first time I ever sowed seeds for myself was I had an under counter light fixture that mm -hmm. I it's fluorescent tubing and I swapped it out for a full spectrum fluorescent light bulb. Right. And I used phone books because they had phone books back then. And I'd stack up the phone books and put the tray on the top level of those phone books. And then as it would grow, I'd pull out a phone book and it would drop down a little bit more and a little bit more and a little bit more. So you can do a, that. A phone what? Phone book. For those, for those of you youngins <laughs> out there. Yeah. It's phone how books. you look people up in the olden days before the in interweb. In the olden days, right. Exactly. Yeah. So the, the light source is important. Also, the length of time is important. So I have my lights on a vacation timer, those little clocks, little, mm -hmm. they kind of crackle and yeah. there. plug it in the wall, you plug your lights into it, and you set it to go on for between 12 and 16 hours a day. Yeah. So I have it, I have it going on in the morning, and then it stays on until about 10 o'clock at night, and then it goes off. So energy efficient lights are important because of that reason. Yeah. Yeah. Amen so that, that might be that might be the reason why, you know, those are happening. With your brassicaceae, if they are leggy, you can bury them deeper once you've planted them, but you may it depends on how long and leggy they are. If they're if they're longer than say, you know, 3 inches, I would start over and try it with a stronger light source because there's all kinds of vulnerability on that length of stem that's really long and before you get to leaf sets and it will not grow leaves below the first set of cotyledons right and you don't want to bury that where the leaves are coming out if you you know if you do bury it deeper if you bury that you're going to kill it yeah you can so one of the things that because mine <laughs> mine have often been and this was when i when i was growing directly sowing in the garden so i put my my seeds for cauliflower and broccoli directly in the garden and they would grow and then they'd get kind of leggy and they'd fall over and then they'd start to, to right themselves. So they were at a right angle. And I would just bury that part that was laying flat on the soil. And they did okay. Once they're established in that yeah. way where they have a root system, you can bury them and they're they're okay. They're not going to grow roots like tomatoes do, but they're it just stabilizes them a little bit. But if you're starting from scratch with little tiny cotyledons and really long stems on your seedlings then maybe start over with a stronger light source yeah and you you know if you've got them growing you can always try it and this is how we learn i'm in my podcast if i'm the urban farm podcast you're the garden nerd podcast this is right yeah yeah and in my podcast one of my questions i asked is tell me about a time you failed and what you learned from it and that is that's a, probably one of the most important questions i ask because it reflects back to people that they you know, this is an experiment. Yeah. Even for me, gardening for, you know, I've gardened for 50 years. Well, I'm gardening in a new place now, but even when I was gardening here after 50 years, it's still a bit of an experiment. It's always an experiment. And, it's, and that's the thing about gardening. You'll never know everything. And right. there will always be failures. And there will always be successes. So we get both. I'm, I'm striving for knowing as much as I can. 
And that's one of the reasons I love interviewing people like you. It's like every time I do a podcast, it's like, what do I get to learn today? <laughs> Yay. Right? Yeah. Right? So Amber wants to know, which fall plants do best in the shade? Good question. Anything that does not produce a fruit is going to do better in low light situations. So all of your herbs that like, uh, except for basil, because basil is a spring and summer crop, but parsley, cilantro, dill, arugula, those are all, those are all great to grow in, in low light scenarios. Lettuces, mustard greens, those will do great. And then leafy greens like the kale and chard things mm-hmm. will do well. But things that need a need to bud, like broccoli and cauliflower and Romanesco, they're not going to do so hot. Some some sources say that you can do root veggies if you have less than six hours of sunlight. If you have between four and six, you can do root veggies. But I feel like they're mm. going to be really small. You could try to yeah. potatoes. Those might work. Yeah. yeah. It's an experiment. Stick to the greens. Experiment away. Yeah. Alicia says, working with nature, particularly in gardening, is a trial and error experience. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. is. Let's see here. Susie says she lives in Phoenix. Is it okay to put out peas, cauliflower, broccoli transplants in the ground? I forgot about peas. Yeah, no, uh, you'll be better to answer this for your zone than I am, but... I forgot about peas. Peas. Most people think to grow peas in the spring, but I grow them mm-hmm. best in the fall. They mm-hmm. do so much better in the fall. Yeah. So yeah, in the fall. Susie, go get my planting calendar. The planting calendar is for the low desert. So it's not going to work for someplace that is not in the low desert. Um, and follow that. It's for, definitely okay to put peas in the ground right now cauliflower and broccoli transplants probably were another month wait. out. Yeah, wait, wait a bit for that. Yeah. And and when I say peas, I mean both, you know, all of them. Shelling, snap, yep. and snow. All of them do so, so, so much better in the fall. And honestly, they hardly make it back into the house because they're the garden snack. Right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. They're so sweet and and they grow, Susie, they grow great here in the low desert. You know, you can put them in the ground now. They like the heat to get them germinated and growing. And you may get a few peas before it gets cold. But what I've found is that it cools off in December here. And then when it warms up in January, they just explode and you'll have yep. so many of them. Yeah. And I also plant sweet peas, meaning the non-edible flowers. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I plant those in the fall also on a different mm-hmm. trellis, but close by my peas because they will be really slow growing over winter, but they'll be the first thing that opens up and flowers in the early spring before you've ever right. planted, you planted anything else. So exactly. I like doing that. Exactly. Jewel says how, so Jewel, this is probably a bill question, Bill McDormand, the seed guys question, but she says, so how do we know what plants to keep away from each other? If you want to save seeds out of the garden. Yeah, that's a, that's a seed savers and, you know, seed school. I, I took seed school from Bill McDormand, by the way. Oh, um, very good. Yeah. And it, it's a fantastic class and he's a great teacher. The, seed, the school, idea, seed school, seedschoolonline.com. Oh, cool. That's our online version with Bill. Fantastic. Oh yeah. Take that for sure. You know, it's kind of like pruning where everything is a little different, but mm-hmm. mostly you want you want to look for things that are self-fertile and you'll have the botanical words for this. I 
I did not get my degree in horticulture <laughs> or botany, any of those things. The easiest ones are going to be the self-seeding or the self-pollinating ones. Self-fertile. Yeah. yeah. And so those are beans and peas, lettuces, most mm -hmm. of the umbelliferae. Well, if yeah, if you save your, your arugula, arugula is like impossible to not have seeds from arugula. Right. <laughs> Just yeah. in that way. And what am I missing? Cilantro and parsley, the easiest, easiest yeah. things to save seeds from really yeah. start with those and then work your way up to some things that are a little harder where you might have to put a bag over them to keep them from, or like a mesh, you know, to keep them from cross pollinating with other plants. It's a little more tricky. Yeah. So, yeah. So we're going to save the seed. There's a couple of questions here on seeds. We're going to save the seed questions for Bill and the seed chat next month. Alicia wants to know any good references on edible weeds. Oh, yes. So, oh my gosh. My colleague, Ellen Zakos, no, Zakos, like tacos, Zakos, Ellen Zakos, Z-A-C-O-S. She has a book called The Forager's Pantry, and Ooh. she has written several books on foraging. She lives in the high desert herself. Can't remember where exactly, okay, but she's in the high desert. So that's just off the top of my head. I think that's a good one to check out. Mm -hmm. And her other and her other books as well. And there are a whole bunch of people on Instagram who are foragers. There's I'm trying to remember oh. the name of the gal. There's a there's a a gal. I think it's I think her thing is Black Forager. I'm not sure, but she's she's a delightful, very enthusiastic forager. You can find oh my gosh, her information. I want to find her and get her on the podcast. I've tried to reach her and she won't respond. Oh well, all right. <laughs> yeah, well, there you go. Like, Come on, be on my podcast. Amber yeah. wants to know, do you turn your dirt or do no dig? With no dig, you do you leave the dirt untouched. That's that's correct. And just add compost on top. Right. So you you want to say something? I'm a no-dig gardener. Yeah. I am I have switched to no-till. Years ago, I switched to no-till, where I basically my prep is put down an inch of compost on top, scratch it in with my fingers, and you know, salt and pepper with some fer organic vegetable fertilizer if it needs it. But the the caveat with that is if you have had nematodes in your mm -hmm. tomatoes mm -hmm. over the summer, aerate your soil. Because one of the reasons why nematodes show up is because the biology in your soil has gotten off. And usually that happens when soil gets compacted or there's been too much water and mm -hmm. which in Arizona is kind of hard to do. But when you get compaction, the good microbes and the good nematodes go away and the bad nematodes set up shop. So I will aerate my soil if I have nematode issues in those beds. I will also aerate my soil if I have tree roots growing under from hedges, hedges Got and it. trees in the neighbors, uh, from the neighbors, or, you know, I don't have any hedges around my own garden, but my neighbors have hedges and those grow into my beds. So I'm going to rip up those roots just to, I use a digging fork and I just rock the digging fork back. I was going to ask you that. Snap the roots and then I put it back. I don't, I don't like toss yeah, everything not, up. It's yeah. not turning it over. It's right. Just, just snapping the roots and, and then doing the no-till kind of thing like that. There you go, Alicia. That's how you do it. Use a broad fork. They call it a broad fork or a pitch fork and just stick it in the ground. And Alicia said, any thoughts on core aeration procedures? There you go. That's how you do it. Core aeration. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I know that there are 
very various ways of doing that kind of thing. People mm -hmm. putting in perforated tubes in their in their garden beds and that kind of thing. But I've never done anything like that. I just use a digging fork and rock it back just to kind yeah. of break things up and get some oxygen in there. So I'm there's a couple other questions here, but I, I want to get to what's next with you, which I'm very excited about. You have to get off early tonight and I'm going to put you on the spot here a little bit and have you tell everybody why you're getting off early tonight. I am. I'm doing a webinar tonight. I'm doing three webinars. The first one is tonight. It's called Winning the Pest Control Game. And I know this by the time your listeners hear this on the podcast, this will be over. But for those of you live here. For those of you live, I've got three dates to choose from. You can do the 27th, the 28th of September or October 5th at different times. And if you go to gardennerd.com slash pest control, you'll find that sign up and you can get in and it's a, a free one hour webinar. I'm going through some of my pest control techniques and then I'm introducing people to my online pest control course called creating a healthy garden because that window nice. for registration has opened today and it closes on October 6th. So that's it. That's why nice. I have to get off. <laughs> nice, nice, nice. And, you know, again, going back to why I love to do the podcast so much when I interviewed you, I think the first time you told me about worm castings, right. worm poop, and what you do with them to help control bugs. And that was like, oh my God, 45 year gardener. It was like, really? <laughs> Tell us about that. Cause that was like, I'm getting chills just asking you this question. Yeah. Uh, it looks like I, I would love to type this in. I don't think that I have access to everybody, but I'll type it in and then you can share okay. it. H-T-T-P-S colon slash slash gardennerd.com G-A-R-D-E-N-E-R-D.com slash pest control. And that is, it's showing up to the host and panelists, which is us two. Yep. But uh, you I'm can fixing it right now. fix that so that it goes, you can paste it in for everybody. There you go. There you go. Thank you for asking. <laughs> you bet. Yeah. So we got like two minutes left. So tell me about worm castings and what they do for us. Sure. And I'm actually going to be sharing this in my webinar tonight. So you get a sneak peek. Worm casting. So the way I explain this, worms don't have teeth. They have enzymatic mouth parts. They <laughs> digest their food and they actually are digesting the bacteria that's on the food that you give them, the scraps that you give them. They digest those with enzymes. And one of the enzymes the main enzyme that they have is called chitinase. And you may have heard of chitin and chitinase. And that's chitin is what makes up those exoskeletons of soft-bodied insects. And chitinase dissolves it. <laughs> so what nice. happens when you put it down on plants that are suffering, that are covered in aphids or mealybugs, whitefly, leafhoppers, the plant takes that up into its leaves. And when those sucking insects start, you know, siphoning away the juices from that plant, they're taking in that chitinase and they're like, what's going on? I'm falling apart. And then they leave. So we've seen it where we have, you know, someone who has a hibiscus plant, which you may or may not have, but they are notorious for getting just webby with whitefly, just horribly webby with whitefly. And we put down a layer, like a quarter inch layer of worm castings around the plant, water it in, and in two weeks, those white flies are gone. Wow. Yeah. I it love works. it. Yeah. I love it. Totally so good. tell me a little bit about your podcast and where people find it. And mm. then we will let you go do what you're going to do. 
Thank you so much for the invitation. So I host the Garden Nerd Tip of the Week podcast. You can find it anywhere you stream podcasts. Mm -hmm. And it's, uh, it's awesome. I listen often. Thank you. I publish that every two weeks. I alternate that with a YouTube video. So it goes YouTube podcast, YouTube podcast. You can find both of those on gardennerd.com and all the other stuff, the blog posts and the books and everything. That's awesome. all going to be there. Yeah. Awesome. Gardennerd.com. Thank you so much. I'm going to let you go. There's a couple of questions here I'm going to answer, but great catching up beforehand. And I'd love to get on the phone and just chat because we got a lot of catching up to do. So absolutely great work. Thank you so much. Have fun tonight. Good luck on your launch. All right. Have bye. Bye. All right. So Deb says, I started new plants in mid-August. Tomatoes, cucumbers, coal, corn, pole, and bush beans and carrots. Will any of them thrive in the fall? It depends where you live. If you're in Arizona, if you get your tomatoes in now, you might get some. Cucumbers aren't probably going to make cucumbers in the low desert. It's too cold. Corn is a maybe. Corn is a grass. So, you know, maybe. Beans, maybe. Carrots for sure. I have heard, Alicia says, have you ever heard of the Peterson Field Guides on edible wild plants? I have. Judith, I have no idea what the symptoms of nematodes are. Maybe you should jump on to gardener.com forward slash pest control. Go take that seminar real quick. And maybe you can ask there. And then Deb says, do worm castings need to be fresh? Absolutely. You want to buy local fresh worm castings because the enzymes and all the good, good stuff in them, uh, you know, it gets old, it can die out. And so, yeah, there you go. Uh, let's see here. Deb says, yes, Pinnell mountains. Cool. Oh, if you got your cucumbers, she says one cucumber so far. Have you got the cucumbers in the ground? Yay. You know, remember gardening is one great big grand experiment, experiment away and figure out what you can and can't do. Don't let me or anybody else tell you what you can't do when growing food, because it's our job to experiment and figure it out. So thank you all very much. I appreciate you uh, joining us tonight. Susan says, yes, Greg, be a scientist. Woohoo! Absolutely. And yes, in uh, Arizona, we have Arizona Worm Farm. They are an amazing, amazing organization. Uh, Jim says, can you use composted cow manure safely in your garden? So it depends what they feed the cows. And if it's completely composted, it has to, hot composting, it has to get real hot to kill the seed, weed seeds that might be in there. That's number one and number two. Number three problem challenge with uh, cow manure is it's high, it's high in urea. There's a lot of cow pee in it and it's not necessarily something that's great for your garden. So I would probably stay away from it, but again, experiment away. It's about, you know, figuring that out. So thank you all for joining us. We have the Great America, if you're in Phoenix, we've got the Great American Seed Up coming up in November. That's an amazing event. GreatAmericanSeedUp.org. Go check it out. And I'll catch you on the flip side. Have a great month. And we'll start this process again next month with all these great classes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. 
In the words of Vincent van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free.